Welcome to the Race and Redemption Podcast. We're here to help white Christians move from questions to change. This is my friend, Susan. She brings her whole heart to this conversation. She has a wealth of experience in cross-cultural relationships in her own family and in her community. And she marries that with the truth of scripture about race and redemption. And this is my friend, Brooke. She has been researching these topics for years within the church, and she's bringing new information that's factual, accurate, and nonpartisan. And that's what the church needs right now. Race and Redemption podcast, we're going to be talking about justice as it shows up in scripture and racial bias and unpacking a little bit about both of those topics. So one of the things that we've both come to understand and explore um, in our own, just searching the scriptures for guidance on these topics of race and redemption is that evangelism and activism are not mutually exclusive. In other words, it's not impossible to be a social justice warrior and also be truly wanting heart change of each individual in our society, right? Um, so or that you're not negating evangelism just because you're being active. Exactly. That you're not, it's not an either it's or. It's either or, it's, it's a, a both and. and. That's so right. That's so right. Uh, so one of the things when we think about racial bias and about justice Um, I mentioned in my own story that the minor prophets really opened my eyes to that. I think I didn't understand my own privilege until I saw it in scripture and it hit me in the face. And I realized that actually God has a heart for the oppressed and God has a heart for those who've been um, broken. So just looking in Amos, Amos 2.6 says, Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Hmm. So I looked at that when I first would read through that and think, okay, that's Israel, right? God is proclaiming upon this nation for their transgressions against him and for them not being faithful to him. But then if we stop and we look at that and say, well, am I in this? Is this talking to me right now? And I think, well, what if, what if I'm in that position right there? What if God is talking about me, me using my privilege, me using my resources and not seeing those who are being Mm -hmm. oppressed, not seeing those who are in need and not caring for them in an active way, not just showing empathy towards them, but actually taking care of them, actually responding to them in a way that's truly loving my neighbor. So I think that's where for me, it moves from just empathy to action. Mm-hmm. And it's not a, it's not an either or it is that both. And yeah, most definitely. And I mean, I think if we look at the new Testament and we see the life of Jesus, almost every time before he moved into an act of, of healing or whatever it was, he, it says he was moved by compassion. Mm-hmm. I um, did a Bible study this uh, past year with some ladies from the school where my girls attend um, by Christine Kane. It was called 2020. And I was reminded as we were thinking about today, this whole section she she had on that Jesus saw through the lens of compassion. And that if we focus on protecting ourselves, that we miss others. Mm. That so many times the enemy uses fear yes. and self-protection to blind us 
from seeing others and being moved to compassion because he knows that through the power of the Holy Spirit, that compassion moves into action mm. and it moves into change. And um, I just want to go through and read a couple of these scriptures that Christine had listed here. Matthew 14, 14, it says that he felt compassion for the crowd and he healed their sick. Matthew 15, 32, felt compassion for the crowd and he fed them. Matthew 20, 29, he felt compassion and opened their eyes. Mark 6, he felt compassion and began to teach. And then it talks about how compassion comes from and what we're to do with it. That it's Colossians 3.12 says that we're chosen of God, so we put on a heart of compassion. That 2 Corinthians 1 says God comforts us so we can comfort others. I just think that over and over again, we're seeing the value of opening up ourselves enough to be able to let others in and to let the Spirit out to other people. And we want to be more like Jesus, right? And this is the way that we can engage evangelism and activism. Because if we're if we're modeling this heart of compassion, we earn the right, the relational equity within that relationship to be able to talk about the scriptures. You know, one time I heard uh, the CEO of World Vision and he was talking about rebuttaling someone's accusation that they weren't really doing Christian work because they weren't evangelizing mm -hmm. people because they were feeding people. And he challenged them and said, how could they hear the gospel over their stomach rumbling, mm -hmm. right? That us feeding them is earning the right to be mm -hmm. able to talk about the mm -hmm. Lord. So it can work both ways. Yes, we need the spirit of the Lord in us to bring that reconciliation and bring that healing. But yet someone that doesn't have it, how are they going to hear when they're in pain, right? When they're traumatized, when they're hurt, when they're feeling oppressed. So we need to be able to put on that heart of compassion to address both. Yeah. And so much in the examples you showed, like that is where Jesus shows up. Yeah. Right. He will always stop his agenda to go and speak to deal with the one or two people that are kind You're of so trailing right. right behind him mm -hmm. who just need that healing compassion. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it's a it's a beautiful picture and challenge to us. I think very much in the church today. And when I say that, I probably mean the majority culture, typically white church today, mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, the churches that maybe we sit in. Um, it's so much about educating our minds and learning mm -hmm. the scriptures and forming our worldview, which is so good, but it's not all. That's right. And we often stop there. We stop with the head knowledge and we need that foundation. Mm -hmm. But when we look at the scriptures, we see that it's so often this call to action. Yes. God is throughout these minor prophets judging our actions. Mm -hmm. And he's looking at how people are interacting with mm -hmm. each other in relationship. And that's where that scripture works through your heart and mm -hmm. out your hands. And that's where we know that our faith is real. Yes. And not dead. Mm -hmm. Because faith without works is dead, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wow. <laughs> I know. So, yes, I'm going to bring the data a lot in our yes, conversations please. because I sit in data all day long and sometimes it's really helpful and sometimes it's really hard. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so this will be a little bit of both. Uh, so, yeah, I do see in some of our research that often the church is too much head and not enough heart and hands. Mm -hmm. And I think um, God's calling us to correct that right now. We yeah. have an opportunity to respond right That's now, right. which is which is great. So I want to share some data that we've been looking at this study on um, basically what became the racial justice study. It started as a study about multi-ethnic churches mm -hmm. and what does it look like to be in relationship and in community in a church um, that's diverse. And we realized it's actually about racial justice after about wow. a year of looking at this data. And here's some of the reasons why. So we asked people last summer, so this is 2019, 
do you think our country has a race problem? Granted, this is 2019. This is not today, right? right. right. Maybe so a little different now. <laughs> might be a different answer today. In fact, we're doing that research right now to find out. But in 2019, if we look at practicing Christians, these are people who go to church regularly and they say that their faith really matters to them. 46% of practicing Christians say our country definitely has a race problem. But that's not the full story. Mm -hmm. And this is so often what we see when we look at data and we look at an average, we don't see color because the color gets Mm -hmm. washed out, Mm -hmm. right? So if we split white practicing Christians, only 38% say we definitely have a problem. 78% of black Christians, almost double black practicing Christians say we have a serious race problem in our country. So what's going on there with the other 60%, more than 60% of white practicing Christians who don't see it. So this is one of the questions we asked about what's underlying this. We said, what is the bigger problem in the U.S. today? Is it individuals, so individuals' own beliefs and prejudices that cause them to treat people of other races poorly? Mm -hmm. Or is it systems that racial discrimination is historically built into our society and institutions, right? So we asked kind of like, what's the bigger issue? And 61% of white Christians say it's individual racism. And 66% of black Christians say it's systemic. Speaking a different language. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So no wonder we can't agree there's a race problem because there's there's two different issues and you're going to solve them differently. differently. Yeah. 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 So even what we just talked about with evangelism and activism Mm -hmm. here is built into that, right? So if we're just talking about evangelism, that's one-on-one. That's Mm -hmm. a heart change of an individual. And that is step one. That is great to have. And that is the goal that of why Jesus came is that he wants us to be transformed, our heart to change and to come to know the gospel and believe and follow him. Yes. But we forget the follow him. Mm-hmm. And so that's where we have to look more broadly. It's not just about us as individuals. It's a society. We so live all, in a body. Exactly. We live in community in our, you know, in our smaller community. We live in a society that's built on structures and yes. institutions. And all through these minor prophets, the prophets aren't speaking to individuals. They're speaking to nations. nations. And that is, for me, one of the keys to understanding this disconnect mm-hmm. on race is it's not just about me as an individual. It is about us as a society. Right. And I think that when you talk to white people and black people in general, that's kind of how we live. I think about the yes. relationships that I've had and and trying to understand, especially in the early years of waking up to um, the lives that have been lost to police brutality and asking mm-hmm. my black friends, why are you so personally feeling this? If you didn't know this person, mm-hmm. why is it affecting you so deeply? And because as a white person, I see myself as an individual that's responsible for my own individual actions. And that person white or whatever is responsible for their own individual actions. And so it doesn't affect me per se, but within the black community, what I've learned is exactly what you're saying here that you're seeing in the research is that they feel and live as a cultural community. And that when one suffers, all suffer, that when one is lost, it affects all of them and they're all feeling that loss. And we could go into a lot of reasons as to why that's the case, but it's true. It is. And that's scriptural. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) And isn't it true that both are scriptural, right? And that we're we're practicing our faith based on our own cultural experience. And this is where uh, Dr. Anita Phillips comes in and talks about things like practicing cultural humility. 
realizing that the way that I practice my faith is not the be all and end all just because it's based on the way my culture does it, that I have to be open to different cultural expressions and perspectives on the scriptures as long as it remains true to what the scriptures have to Mm. say. That there's not, and I think so many times as Christians in America, we end up thinking someone's being heretical or not theologically sound when it's actually just a cultural difference. Yeah. The the lens through which we interpret scripture. Right. We see different things. Right. And that's a good thing. And we have so much to learn from each other when we share that lens with each other and when we share what we've understood because of our lived experience. Mm-hmm. There is no single theologian who's ever walked who didn't have a cultural lens, right? right. We all have it. We just don't know what it is. Um, And just learning to see that. I think one of the things that I have um, experienced in trying to understand my own culture and Mm -hmm. that, first of all, I have a culture. Yes. Oh my goodness. There's a white culture. I have a culture. In fact, I have a middle-class Atlantan, you know, culture, white culture. That's a very specific culture. Uh, I lived in lots of other places, and that's when I realized that Atlanta mm-hmm. is not New York, is not L.A., <laughs> is not London. <laughs> it's right. different culturally. Um, but the white culture is a thing. Mm-hmm. And there's all these underlying reasons why that is or things that have shaped it. So one of them is our Americanism, mm-hmm. like our individualistic, you can do this, you can become whatever you want to be. Like our country was founded upon that. That didn't apply to everybody. That's right. And that was a really hard thing to realize. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, we put our individual salvation as a goal. Mm -hmm. And you suddenly realize I'm all about the individual, Mm -hmm. but have I loved my brother and sister Mm -hmm. as myself? And that's a really hard battle that I have to battle against all the time in my myself Mm -hmm. and in my family's lives of seeing beyond self, seeing beyond the individual, which is just countercultural for us. So I have this quote that I came across um, a couple weeks ago, shared from the South African Bishop Peter Story from uh, probably 18, 19 years ago. But I felt like it really speaks to what we're talking about. He said, uh, American preachers have a task more difficult, perhaps, than those faced by us under South Africa's apartheid or Christians under communism's. We've had obvious evils to engage, but you have to expose and confront the great disconnect between the kindness, compassion, and caring of most American people and the ruthless way American power is experienced directly and indirectly by the poor of the earth. Mm -hmm. You have to help good people see how they have let their institutions do their sinning for them. Wow. This is not easy among people who really believe that their country does nothing but good, but it is necessary not only for their future, but for us all. Mm. Yeah, man. Man, when I read that, I thought, man, doesn't that hit it? Because you you talk to the everyday American person and and they are, they they believe in um, kindness and compassion and they believe in this um, ability to rise above and to have the American um, story, the American dream. Mm -hmm. And um, they, you know, they've had difficulties and setbacks and struggles and, and on a one-on-one basis, they see someone, they're going to help them. Yeah, That's true, mainly from what I've, what I've experienced. And so when he said they've let their institutions do their sinning for them, it was extremely convicting for me because I think so many Americans are not aware. They're not aware. And that's when, when our black brothers and sisters talk about systemic injustice. Yeah, These are things that are 
intentionally and unintentionally have have been implanted, but also have naturally evolved within our laws and our institutions and our systems that give priority in certain ways to one race and and not others. Yeah, and I know we'll get into this um, more in depth as we as we go down the road, but just starting from the three fifths of a person. Yes, as, as you know, African Americans from the beginning of the establishment of our Constitution mm-hmm. have not even been considered full people. And to, if that's the starting point mm-hmm. and and we're here, it's only done this. It's only risen for us. And, and it's been so much harder for them to reach that American dream that, right. that we're talking about. They're starting behind the start line. Yeah, because it's like peeling an onion. So we'll peel off a layer at a time, mm. but we haven't like sliced that onion in half. Right. We haven't really gotten to the core right. of the very foundation of what we started with mm-hmm. was just inequitable. It was, it was oppressive. And yes. that is so hard to own right mm-hmm. now today in, in a society where I feel like there is opportunity compared to mm-hmm. however many hundred years ago, um, there is opportunity for people of color. And yet yes. it's still not the same because we didn't start that way. And because I have to own up that I don't, I don't know exactly if that exists in my family, but I have to realize that I'm in the same kind of group or bucket mm-hmm. as any other person who is white, who's had financial resources and mm-hmm. opportunities in their life, that that's been built upon slavery. Yes. One way or another, it exists today. My opportunities exist today because of someone else's oppression. Right. That is a really hard pill to swallow. But And we're still dealing with um, the economic effects of that time. We think about how um, owning land and owning property is the number one indicator of wealth and the growth of wealth and generational wealth within our country. And so we are, as white Americans, living in the bounty of the fact that we have great-great-grandparents that were able to own land, able Mm -hmm. to own homes, Mm -hmm. that increased in equity over time, were handed down, sold, and then we've been able to live live in that. And our uh, black brothers and sisters, my goodness, if we were to go into all of the different things that were set against them for them to be able to hold property and hold land and homes, it's only been, my gosh, in the past couple of decades that things have started to become a little more equitable. Right. And so they don't have the the advantages yeah. of that generational wealth being passed down. And I know that's not 100% accurate for every case, right. but in, in a general consensus, that's, that's what we have to own. But I think that's the point is that it's so easy for us to look for the exceptions yes. and say, well, not in my case or, you know, yes. and genuinely I didn't come from a place of wealth. Um, my family right. doesn't have that, but that doesn't matter. I still had the opportunities that mm-hmm. were afforded to me as a white person. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where we have to look as a whole. And we're not trained to do that. Like our, mm-hmm. our culture doesn't train mm-hmm. us to look as a whole. Our culture trains us to look at ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so we have to constantly battle against that of, what is is taking place around me that I'm not aware of that is putting me ahead and putting someone else behind? And how can I help change that system? And it's moving us into the conversation of equity versus equality, right? Oh, that's a good distinction. So we hear so much that we need, that we talk about, we all have equal rights, mm-hmm. you know, that we have equal rights under the law. Now we do, but we don't talk about the fact that as white people, we have more equity right now. And so for really for there to be true equality, part of equity means that we have to give some stuff up a little bit. And, you know, I always like to look at the Bible and I see that example in Jesus where Jesus Christ, who was equal with God, 
didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself mm-hmm. and he gave up that position mm-hmm. to become a man mm-hmm. so that we could share in his inheritance and become co-heirs, right? So when we look at Jesus, that's what he's telling us to do as well, is mm-hmm. is what what can we give up so that our black brothers and sisters can share in the inheritance that we've received as white Americans? Mm-hmm. And that's just so liberating because mm-hmm. it's not like, You've amassed all this wealth and you need to give it up. It's it's like, no, Jesus no, gave share. us this model. Yeah. He had power. Yes. He had access to anything he wanted. And yet he gave that aside. He put that aside. He gave yeah. that up so that others could join him. Right. Absolutely. Like, that's just it's so much better together, model. right? Yes. <laughs> so much better. Such a liberating model. So I think one of the things we want to dig into in our... Um, subsequent episodes Mm -hmm. is a little bit more about what does it look like to understand cultural humility? Yes. That's the new concept was for me, new concept for a lot of people. Um, What does it look like to really learn from others who are different from us? Mm -hmm. Uh, I mentioned we've been working on this study the last year and a half, two years. And in order to better understand and interpret what I see in the data, I've been actually following voices that are very different from what I might normally follow. Yes, same here. Um, my Instagram feed looks really different than who <laughs> I look like every day. Yeah. And there's a reason for that, um, which is I don't know how to understand that world unless I hear those voices, right? right. And I have become, by listening to and, and hearing voices, hearing from people whose experiences are very different from mine, I've learned so much. Mm-hmm. My eyes are more aware. Mm-hmm. And even if I don't agree with them on every point, that's not that's not the goal. Yes. The goal is not to find someone who I'm aligned with. It's actually to find someone who I might even disagree with. But they've shown me a new perspective. Mm-hmm. And I have to continue to read and see that day mm-hmm. by day to be kind of retraining my mind to see others because I'm yes. not trained that way, right? So I'm retraining my mind to see others as they see it. When speaking of training, I always like to use this example for people that are kind of first engaging in this learning. Um, it can be really exhausting. Oh, for sure. It can be really <laughs> overwhelming and emotional. And you can feel a lot of things that you don't expect to feel. Maybe anger. There can be shame that may come in. There can be frustration with others. Um, and I've seen people try to jump in just and and drown under yeah. under all of this and kind of the way that I like to explain it is it's like you've never worked out and then <laughs> and then your friend invites you to the CrossFit games <laughs> and you're trying to compete in the CrossFit games and imagine all the things that you're going to feel there you're not so going to make it <laughs> you can't do it right right you got to start out taking what you can and growing that muscle because yeah. there is this muscle inside of us that yeah. it takes to be able to live in the race conversation every day. And our black brothers and sisters have been living this day after day for their whole lives. So they yeah. are strong yeah. and they are able to engage and continue on and continue on in ways that maybe someone that's new to this really can't. And so I just say, take what you can train, add more in, diversify, you know, we got to get some cardio and we got to get some weightlifting and we got to do some different stuff. And that's going to help you in the long run. And through all of that, not only is our lens shaped, but we're shaped, our hearts are shaped. So I love where God is using that to just reform us, transform us into who he's made us to be. All right. Well, I appreciated hearing all that data from you. I thank you. And I'm looking forward to the next time we're together. Wonderful.
Thank you for joining us today for the Race and Redemption podcast. Please subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts and continue the conversation with us on Instagram at Race and Redemption. This episode was produced by Matt Owen for Soul Graffiti Productions.